Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided by the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, L.A. are the copyright property of the original office and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so let's start off with an obituary. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023, Paul Rubens, 1952 to 2023, actor taught world to play. He carved a place in pop culture zeitgeist with the zany character Pee Wee Herman by Christy Karras and Nardine Saad. Paul Rubens, the actor and comedian who portrayed Pee Wee Herman on the stage and screen, has died. He was 70. The veteran children's entertainer who created and starred in Pee-wee's Playhouse died Sunday from cancer, according to a statement shared Monday on the Pee-wee Herman Instagram page. Last night, we said farewell to Paul Rubens, an iconic American actor, comedian, writer, and producer whose beloved character, Pee-wee Herman, delighted generations of children and adults with his positivity, whimsy, and belief in the importance of kindness, the statement read. Paul bravely and privately fought cancer for years with his trademark tenacity and epic talent. He will forever live in the comedy pantheon and in our hearts as a treasured friend and man of remarkable character and generosity of spirit. The post also included a quote from Rubens. Please accept my apology for not going public with what I've been facing the last six years, he said. I've always felt a huge amount of love and respect from my friends, fans, and supporters. I have loved you all so much and enjoyed making art for you. Born Paul Rubenfield in Peekskill, New York on August 27, 1952, Rubens was the eldest of three children and grew up primarily in Sarasota, Florida before going to Boston University and the California Institute of the Arts. Accompanied by a talking chair and pterodactyl named Terry, Rubens established his place in the pop culture zeitgeist with a maniacal laugh, form-fitting gray suit, and red bow tie, while embodying the man-child who ran amok on Saturday mornings during the TV run of Pee-wee's Playhouse. The CBS series aired from 1986 to 1990 and then yielded the big-screen adaptations Pee-wee's Big Adventure, directed by Tim Burton, and Big Top Pee-wee in the 1980s. Stage shows followed in more recent years, as did Netflix's 2016 follow-up, Pee-wee's Big Holiday, produced by Judd Apatow. The character, whose catchphrase was, I know you are, but when am I, actually originated on stage as a darker satire than the one that endeared himself to generations of fans. Rubens created Herman in the late 1970s during his run with the Los Angeles improv group, The Groundlings. The live Pee-wee Herman show debuted at a Los Angeles theater in 1981 and was a success both with kids during matinees and adults at midnight shows. The show closely resembled the format of the TV program that would bring Rubens national acclaim. It featured stock character visits with his pals Captain Carl, played by late Saturday Night Live star Phil Hartman, Miss Yvonne, Lynn Marie Stewart, Mailman Mike, John Moody, Cowboy Curtis, Lawrence Fishburne slash Phil Lamar, and Jambi the Genie, the late John Paragon. I occupy this unique space in some people's childhood where there where there was a point in time where I influenced them in some way, he told the Times in 2014. I don't want to get corny on you, but I am kind of corny. 
And that's one of the greatest things about my career. I get this incredible feedback from people out all the time. When I go out now, someone will come up to me and say, I'm an artist because of you. I didn't really set out to do that, but it's enormously satisfying, he said. Although Roman cemented his dweeby persona with children, adults, and artists of all ages, that lightheartedness soured and swiftly turned into a punchline. In 1991, he was arrested in an adult movie theater in his hometown on suspicion of indecent exposure. The Sarasota arrest news took the nation by storm with a mix of horror and countless late-night punchlines and ill-informed man-on-the-street interviews. His notorious mugshot, the actor wore no makeup and had long hair and a beard, also made the rounds relegating him for years to exile from the entertainment industry. Months after the arrest, Rubens pleaded no contest to a misdemeanor charge of indecent exposure. According to the Times reports, the turning point in the case appeared, apparently came when Rubens' lawyers disclosed to the prosecution a videotape shot by security cameras in the lobby of the theater on the night the performer was arrested. His attorney said the, ta- uh, the time code on the videotape showed that Rubens was in the lobby when an undercover detective allegedly alleged that he saw the actor masturbating in the theater. It's a way to avoid five days of a chaotic trial, a source uh, close to, the, to Rubens told the Times. This situation has been, de- has been devastating to Paul, and he has become almost a complete recluse. This is an opportunity where the prosecution has offered him no record of guilt. He personally felt exonerated. Police also raided Rubens' Hollywood Hills home in 2001, and the next year, the actor turned himself into the Hollywood division of the LAPD, which arrested him on a misdemeanor charge of possession of obscene material improperly depicting a child. In 2004, he pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor obscenity charge and was placed on probation after striking a plea bargain. Prosecutors dropped the more serious charges of child pornography. Eventually making a comeback as an actor and as Herman, Rubens saw his career become as eclectic as his signature persona. The actor's credits included appearances on the TV series Murphy Brown, Dirt, Pushing Daisies, Gotham, and The Blacklist. More recently, he played the doll-like disembodied spirit known as Dybuck on the D- on CW's D- CW's DC's Legends of Tomorrow. He also landed guest spots as Herman on Sesame Street, WrestleMania, and WWE Raw, among others, and filled his resume with steady voice work on animated programs including Tron Uprising, Batman the Brave and the Bold, and Phineas and Ferb. Rubens also embodied his signature character on theater stages, and in 2021, after a viral Twitter campaign, he guest-hosted a radio show as Herman for KCRW-FM 89.9. He is survived by a brother, Luke Rubenfield, and sister, Abby Rubenfield. That was Paul Rubens, 1952-2023, actor taught World to Play by Christy Karras and Nardine Saad from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. The Associated Press contributed to this report. Right, here's an Israel story from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Judicial reform law goes to Israeli High Court. Full panel of 15 justices would hear challenges to the new overhaul legislation that has sparked mass protests. From the Associated Press. Jerusalem. 
Israel's Supreme Court said Monday that a full panel of 15 justices would hear petitions in September against a contentious law that was passed last week by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government and that has spurred mass protests. The law was among the proposed changes to Israel's judiciary put forward by Netanyahu's government this year that seek to curb the power of the Supreme Court. The judicial overhaul plan has been met with months of sustained mass protests against the legislation and drawn criticism from the White House. Critics of the overhaul say that the package of laws would concentrate power in the hands of the ruling coalition and erode the system of checks and balances between branches of government. Proponents say the measures are necessary to limit the power of unelected judges who they say are overly activist. Netanyahu and his allies passed a law last week that removes the High Court's ability to annul government decisions considered unreasonable. The reasonableness standard uh, was implemented by the Supreme Court this year to thwart the appointment of a Netanyahu ally as interior minister after he had recently pleaded guilty to tax offenses. The court said the hearing concerning the law striking down the reasonable standard would take place September 12th with a full bench of 15 justices. The Supreme Court typically hears cases with smaller panels of justices, but appears to have opted for a full complement of judges because of the highly delicate nature of the matter. The Netanyahu administration's push to overhaul the judiciary has deeply divided an already highly polarized country and sparked the longest sustained protests in the nation's history. Netanyahu and his allies took office in December after the country's fifth election in less than four years, most of them referendums on the long-term leaders fit as to serve while on trial on corruption charges. That was judicial reform law goes to Israeli High Court from the Associated Press out of the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. All right, now going back to our country, here's a couple of stories regarding the Pittsburgh shooter. This is from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. Death Sentence for Synagogue Shooter The gunman killed 11 worshippers in Pittsburgh, the nation's deadliest attack on Jewish people. From the Associated Press Pittsburgh The gunman who stormed a synagogue in the heart of Pittsburgh's Jewish community and killed 11 worshippers will be sentenced to death for perpetrating the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history, a jury decided Wednesday. Robert Bowers spewed hatred of Jews and espoused white supremacist beliefs online before methodically planning and carrying out the 2018 massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue, where members of three congregations had gathered for Sabbath worships and studies. Bowers, a truck driver from suburban Baldwin, Pennsylvania, also wounded two worshippers and five responding police officers. The same federal jury that convicted the 50-year-old Bowers on 63 criminal counts recommended that he be put to death for an attack whose uh, impacts continue to reverberate. He showed little reaction as the sentence was announced, briefly acknowledging his legal team and family as he was led from the courtroom. A judge will formally impose the sentence later. Jurors were unanimous in finding that Bowers' attack, attack was motivated uh, by his hatred of Jews and that he chose the Tree of Life for its location in one of the largest and most historic Jewish communities in the U.S., so that he could maximize the devastation, amplify the harm of his crimes, and instill fear with the local, national, and international Jewish communities. He also found that Bowers lacked remorse. At a news conference after the verdict, 
Attack survivor Rabbi Jeffrey Myers of the Tree of Life congregation noted that Wednesday was a day of love on the Hebrew calendar. I don't believe in coincidences. Today we received an immense embrace from the halls of justice, he said, taking the jury's decision as an affirmation that we have the right to practice our Judaism, and no one will ever take that right away from us. The family of 97-year-old Rose Malinger, who was killed in the attack, and her daughter, Andrea Wedner, who was shot and wounded, thanked the jury, jurors and said a measure of justice has been served. Bauer's lead defense attorney, Judy Clark, declined to comment. The verdict came after a lengthy trial in which jurors heard the in chilling detail how Bowers reloaded at least twice, stepped over the bloodied bodies of his victims to look for more people to shoot, and surrendered only when he ran out of ammunition. In the sentencing phase, grieving family members told the jury about the lives that Bowers took, elderly people and intellectually disabled brothers among them, and the unrelenting path of their loss, uh, survivors testified about their own lasting pain, both physical and emotional. Through it all, Bowers showed little reaction to the proceeding that would uh, decide his fate, typically looking down at papers or screens at the defense table. He even told the psychiatrist that he thought the trial was was helping to spread his anti-Semitic message. It was the first federal death sentence imposed during the presidency of Joe Biden, whose 2020 campaign included a pledge to end capital punishment. Biden's Justice Department has placed a moratorium on federal executions and has declined to authorize the death penalty in hundreds of new cases in which it could apply. But federal prosecutors said said death was the appropriate punishment for Bowers, citing the vulnerability of his family, elderly victim of, the, of his mainly elderly victims, and his hate-based targeting of a religious community. While today's unanimous decision by a federal jury in Pittsburgh is an important act of accountability, it will never bring back the 11 people who lost their lives or heal the grief and trauma of their loved ones, said White House spokeswoman Olivia Dalton, adding that Biden was praying for the victims' families and for all those in the broader community who have been so deeply impacted by this tragedy. Most victims' families said Bowers should die for his crimes. Bowers' lawyers never contested his guilt, focusing their efforts on trying to save his life. They presented evidence of a horrific childhood marked by trauma and neglect. They also claimed Bowers had severe, untreated mental illness, saying he killed out of a delusional belief that Jews were helping to cause a genocide of white people. The defense argued that schizophrenia and brain abnormalities made Bowers more susceptible to being influenced by the extremist content he found online. The prosecution disputed that mental illness had anything to do with it, saying Bowers knew exactly what he was doing uh, when he opened fire on terrified congregants with an AR-15 rifle and other weapons. Bowers blasted his way into Tree of Life on October 27, 2018, and killed members of the Dor Hadash New Light and Tree of Life congregations which shared the synagogue building. The deceased victims were Joyce Feinberg, 75, Richard Gottfried, 65, Rose Maliger, 97, Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz, 66, brothers David Rosenthal, 54, and Cecil Rosenthal, 59, Bernice Simon, 84, and her husband, Sylvan Simon, 86, Dan Stein, 71, Melvin Wax, 87, and Irving Younger, 69. Bowers, who traded gunfire with officers and was shot three times, 
told police at the scene that all these Jews need to die according to testimony. Ahead of the attack, he posted, liked, or shared a stream of virulently anti-Semitic content on Gab, a social media platform popular with the far right. He has expressed no remorse for the killings, telling mental health experts he saw himself as a soldier in a race war, took pride in the attack, and wished he had, a sh had shot more people. Martin Gaynor, a Dor Hadesh member and attack survivor, said Wednesday that anti-Semitism is on the rise. All those affected by the massacre knew where this leads, he said, a dark path that descends into hate, violence, and destruction. This is not only bad for Jews, it's bad for our entire country. If we permit hate to enter our hearts, we ourselves are diminished. That was death sentence for synagogue shooter from the Associated Press. Out of the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, August 3rd, 2022. 23, that is. Here's a follow-up story uh, from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 4th, 2023. Synagogue gunman formally receives death sentence. Victims' families address him in court. You will never be forgiven, says one. From the Associated Press. Pittsburgh. The man who killed 11 congregants at a Pittsburgh synagogue was formally sentenced to death Thursday, one day after a jury determined that capital punishment was appropriate for the perpetrator of the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. U.S. District Judge Robert Colville imposed the sentence on Robert Bowers, a 50-year-old truck driver whose vicious anti-Semitism led him to shoot his way into a place of worship and target people for practicing their faith. I have nothing specific that I care to say to Mr. Bowers, Colville said, before issuing the formal sentence. I am, however, convinced that there is nothing I could say to him that I that might mean, be meaningful. Bowers, who swapped the casual street clothes he wore throughout the trial for a red jail suit, chose not to speak. He spent the entire hearing looking at and shuffling through papers and writing and refused to look at those he victimized in the eye, even when invited to do so. Bowers from suburban Baldwin ranted about Jews online before carrying out the attack at the Tree of Life Synagogue on October 27, 2018. He told police at the scene that all these Jews must die and has since expressed pride in the killings. Jurors were unanimous in finding that Bowers', atta Bowers attack was motivated by his hatred of Jews and that he chose Tree of Life for its location in one of the largest and most historic Jewish communities in the nation so he could maximize the devastation, amplify the harm of his crimes, and instill fear within the local, national, and international Jewish communities. They also found that Bowers lacked remorse. The jury rejected defense claims that Bowers had schizophrenia and that his delusions about Jewish people spurred the attack. Before Colville pro uh, pronounced, uh, pronounced the sentence, grieving families confronted Bowers at Thursday's hearing describing the pain and suffering he had inflicted and calling him evil and cowardly. Mr. Bowers, you met my beloved husband in the kitchen. Your callous disregard for the person he was, he was repulses me, testified Peg Dorochko, wife of 65-year-old Dr. Richard Gottfried, a dentist who was killed. Your hateful act took my soulmate from me. Mark Simon whose parents, Bernice and Sylvan Simon, were killed in the attack, testified he still had their bloodied prayer shawl. He said he remains haunted by the 911 call placed by his mother, whom Bowers shot while she was on the line. My parents died alone, without any living soul to comfort them or to hold their hand in their last moments, said Simon. 
condemning that defendant and urging the judge to show no mercy. You will never be forgiven. Never, Simon told Bowers. It was the first federal death sentence imposed during the presidency of Joe Biden, who pledged during his 2020 campaign to end capital punishment. Biden's Justice Department has placed a moratorium on federal executions and has declined to authorize the death penalty in hundreds of new cases where it could apply. But federal prosecutors said death was the appropriate punishment for Bowers, citing the vulnerability of his mainly elderly victims and his hate-based targeting of a religious community. An appeal is expected, meaning that Bowers will likely spend years on federal death row even if the Justice Department lifts the moratorium on executions. Bauer, who was armed with an AR-15 rifle and other weapons, also shot and wounded seven, including five police officers. He was convicted in June of 63 federal counts, including hate crimes resulting in death and obstruction of the free exercise of religion resulting in death. In addition to Gottfried and the uh, Simons, those killed were Joyce Feinberg, 75, Rose Malinger, 97, Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz, 66, brothers David Rosenthal, 54, and Cecil Rosenthal, 59, Dan Stein, 71, Melvin Wax, 87, and Irving Younger, 69. The judge said he couldn't begin to understand the pain of the loved ones of the victims. May their memory be a blessing, Colville said from the bench. That was synagogue gunman formerly receives death sentence from the Associated Press out of the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 4, 2023. Okay, on to some business news here from the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Disney's Iger hires two ex-lieutenants. Tom Staggs and Kevin Mayer will evaluate partners for ESPN by Meg James. Well, Disney Company Chief Executive Bob Iger has hired two former lieutenants, Tom Staggs and Kevin Mayer, as consultants to help their company analyze strategic options for ESPN, according to two people familiar with the plans who are not authorized to comment. The former Disney colleagues, who now run Los Angeles-based Candle Media, will work with ESPN chairman Jimmy Pitaro to evaluate strategic partners for the cable sports operation, the uh, knowledgeable sources said. Both executives have deep ties in investment circles. Candle Media is backed by private equity firm Blackstone. Disney intends to keep ESPN, which has rights to the most popular sports league in America, according to Iger. The sports behemoth is still hugely popular and profitable, but it faces significant headwinds because its primary revenue stream is under threat as more consumers ditch their cable and satellite TV subscriptions in favor of streaming apps. The sports juggernaut last month laid off roughly 20 high-profile commentators, including former New York Knicks coach Jeff Van Gundy, former NBA player Jalen Rose, and popular NFL broadcaster Susie Colbert. During an appearance on CNBC last month, Iger said the company was open to inviting in strategic partners that could either help us with distribution or content for ESPN. Iger has acknowledged that ESPN eventually will be delivered directly to consumers, bypassing its longtime partners, the pay TV companies. However, Iger stopped short of announcing a timeline for that uh, tectonic shift. Pay TV providers, including DirecTV, Comcast, Xfinity, and Charter Spectrum, pay stiff fees to distribute the ESPN channels to their uh, customers. 
More than a decade ago, ESPN was distributed in nearly 100 million cable homes. Now the main ESPN channels are carried in about 70 million homes, and analysts expect, expect the number to continue to fall. The streaming service ESPN Plus has about 25 million subscribers, according to the company. Stags and Mayer, Mayer will continue to run Candle Media, which includes Hello Sunshine, the media company launched by Reese Witherspoon, and Moonbug Entertainment, which produces children's entertainment. It's unclear whether the pair will help Disney evaluate options for its other linear television properties, including ABC. Iger has expressed a willingness to part with the TV network he joined in 1974. Both have a deep familiarity with Disney's business. Staggs is the former chief operating officer, former chief financial officer, and former head of the Disney theme parks. Mayer, as chief strategy officer, was a key architect of many of the company's blockbuster deals. Mayer oversaw the launch of the Disney Plus streaming service, as well as the creation of ESPN Plus. He left the company in May 2020, three months after Iger tapped Bob Chapek to succeed him as CEO. After a two-and-a-half-year run, Chapek was forced out in November, leading to Iger's return to the company. Iger recently signed a new deal that would keep him at Disney through December 2026. Iger had initially tapped Staggs in 2015 as his top lieutenant uh, in line to succeed him, but Staggs left the company following the following year after it became clear that Iger wasn't ready to give up the reins anytime soon. Disney's hiring of Staggs and Mayer was first reported by the online news site Puck. That was Disney's Iger hires two ex-lieutenants by Meg James from the uh, Los Angeles Times Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. All right, here is one more from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 4th, 2023. Zaslav strikes a conciliatory note. In Warner Brothers Discovery Earnings Call, he expressed hope for a fair deal by Stephen Battaglio. Warner Brothers Discovery Chief Executive David Zaslav expressed hope Thursday for a resolution in the strikes by the writers and actors that have brought TV and film production to a standstill. I think all of us in this business are very keen to figure out a solution as quickly as possible, Zaslav told analysts uh, on the company's second quarter earnings call. Perhaps aware that wealthy media moguls, including himself, have been ridiculed at strike rallies by the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA for being greedy, Zaslav took a conciliatory tone when addressing the labor standoff. We're hopeful that all, side, <clears throat> all sides will get back to the negotiating room soon that these strikes will uh, get resolved in a way that the writers and actors feel they are fairly compensated and their efforts and contributions are fully valued, Zaslav said. Zaslav has been mocked by the, by the guilds for his comment in May that love for the business and love for working would eventually lead to an end of the writer's strike. His remarks came a day before the WGA's negotiating committee and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which bargains on behalf of the studios and streamers, were to meet Friday to discuss negotiations. The two sides have not convened since the writer's strike commenced on May 2nd. SAG-AFTRA began its strike on July 14. Both guilds are looking for improved residual uh, payments for streaming and protections against the use of artificial intelligence. 
While WBD executives did not mention any timetable for a resolution, their financial models for the year are based on a return to work by September. The stoppage of the production of scripted content at the company led to a savings in the low $100 million range in the second quarter of Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, said. Executives did not play up the strike-related savings, however, as any benefit from the short work stoppage will be short-lived. WBD is battling Netflix, Comcast, and other media companies for audiences in the streaming market, and a pipeline of fresh programming is key to making its max a must-have service. We are in some uncharted waters in terms of the world as it is today and measuring it all, said Zaslav. Overall, Warner Brothers Discovery posted a net loss of $1.2 billion or $0.51 cents a share, down from $3.4 billion or $1.50 a share. It lost in the same period a year ago. The company missed Wall Street estimates but reported improved free cash flow of $1.7 billion compared with $789 million a year ago. Weaker than expected theatrical box office results from The Flash and a soft advertising market were mitigated by ongoing cost reductions throughout the company. Over the last year, WBD has undertaken thousands of layoffs across divisions including CNN and other cable networks and slashed dozens of TV programs and movies as it tries to reduce debt. Revenue rose 5% to $10.4 billion. The potent box office results from the global success of Barbie released earlier this month were not included in the results. The company saw an an expected drop in subscribers resulting from the relaunch of its direct-to-consumer streaming service HBO Max on May 23rd. Now called Max, the new service combines the content of HBO Max and Discovery Plus, which led to an overlap of 4 million customers. The company reported 95.8 million subscribers, down 1.8 million from the first quarter. The migration of Max has gone exceedingly well, with an over, the overwhelming majority of subscribers in the U.S. successfully transferred, Zaslav said. He said the company is seeing consumers spend more time with Max since the changeover. The loss in streaming revenue from the changeover was far less than, the, than anticipated. The streaming unit posted a loss of $3 million after posting a profit of $50 million in the first quarter. But that is far better than the $518 million loss posted a year ago. WBD stock price was down 1% at $12.40 a share in midday trading. That was Zaslav Strike's A Conciliatory Note from Stephen Battaglio out of the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, August 4th. 2023. Okay, let's go on to some entertainment news. Uh, This one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, July 30th, 2023. Why the Exorcist Still Makes Head Spin by Chris Wagner. On August 20th, 1949, the Washington Post ran a front-page story with a rather shocking headline. Priest Frees Mount Rainier Boy uh, Reported Held in Devil's Grip. The story below went on to report, in dry, objective detail, that a 14-year-old has been freed by a Catholic priest of possession by the devil in what is perhaps one of the most remarkable experiences of its kind in recent religious history. 
There it is in black and white, above the fold, right next to an article about the FCC. This, we are told, really happened. There has been some disagreement over the years about exactly where in Maryland the exorcism took place. More important is the fact, uh, the fact-based approach to the story, the idea that this tale belongs to really to, to reality rather than the supernatural. It's the same principle that guides the exorcist, uh, William Friedkin's hugely influential smash hit horror movie, which had moviegoers lining up around the block fifty years for. Uh, uh, for, uh, 50 years ago for the privilege of getting scared to death and, in many cases, vomiting on their way out of the theater, usually before the movie ended. As Nat Segaloff explains in his new book, The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear, the movie would go on to spawn sequels, prequels, knockoffs, and even a TV series, which ran from 2016 to 2017, Get Thee Behind Me. It's about to get yet another sequel, courtesy of David Gordon Green, who has who just finished revamping the Halloween franchise. As is often the case, there's still nothing like the real thing, or at least the original movie based on a book based on the thing that might have been real. Adapted by William Peter Biatti, uh, Blatty from his own novel, which was inspired by the 1949 story, The Exorcist, for all its grisly makeup and visual effects, betrays the documentary background of its director, and this is what makes it terrifying. Friedkin was coming off an Oscar win for directing The French Connection, 1971, but his roots were in hard, scrabble nonfiction, including a documentary, The People vs. Paul Crump, that helped get a man off death row. He had a cinematographer, Owen, Owen Roisman, trained in the art of close-quarters guerrilla shooting. The result is a movie determined uh, through its images, its editing, and its naturalistic sound, which earned one of the movie's two Oscars to convince you that what you're watching through the cracks be, uh, between t uh, your fingers is really happening. That this little girl, played by Linda Blair, is really inhabited by a demon named Pazuzu, who swears like a drunken sailor, voiced by a gravelly Mercedes McCambridge and possesses a cruel sense of humor. And that her mother, Ellen Bernstein, Bernstein is at her wit's end after cycling through a series of doctors who trot out rational diagnoses to explain what might be wrong with poor Regan. In this, in this sense, The Exorcist isn't all fantastical. It's as lean and blunt as that newspaper headline, or a hard backhand delivered by the demon's tormented human host. In his dutiful soup-to-nuts book about the movie and its legacy, Segalop, who was a publicity director for a Boston theater chain where the movie showed during its original run, addresses the question of what made so many Exorcist viewers throw up. The obvious assumption is that it was the projectile pea soup or the bloody cross or the spinning head. Not so, insisted the, uh, uh, Vladi, who claimed to have posted up at the at the uh, back of the uh, of the theaters, watch the natural, watch the nausea flee. The worst culprit, uh, Blatty says, was the scene in which Regan gets an arteriogram. A needle is jabbed into her neck, and blood comes spurting out. In other words, according to Blatty, it was the realistic depiction of a flesh and blood medical procedure 
that made most viewers lose their lunch, rather than any devil play. Apocryphal? Perhaps. But the story speaks to the idea that the movie's sense of realism is its most disturbing quality. Friedkin is a believer, or at least he sees the advantages of playing one. As single of details, in 2017, Friedkin made a documentary called The Devil and Father Amorth, in which he accompanies a real-life exorcist plying his trade on an Italian woman. A former exorcist for the Diocese of Rome, Gabriel Amorth was the inspiration for the re uh, recent Russell Crowe horror movie, The Pope's Exorcist, which isn't as bad as you might think. Amorth was also a co-founder of the International Association of Exorcists. Everyone, it seems, could use a union. The documentary, which runs barely over an hour, feels a little stunt-like and probably won't earn many new converts. And yet, it's still a documentary about an exorcist made by the director of The Exorcist. Sigalov argues convincingly that The Exorcist is about faith. Father Karras, the young priest play, uh, played by Jesuit-educated playwright-turned-actor Jason Miller, is losing his. He is existential. He is an existential uh, freefall well before being drafted into exorcism duties. The world occupied by Chris McNeil, Regan's mom, is the secular stew of Hollywood. She is in Washington, D.C. to make a movie when her daughter becomes the devil's plaything. What does Karis believe? What does Chris believe? More to the point, what does the viewer believe? Could or did something like this really happen? Answers be, uh, can answers be found in mental illness or an overactive imagination? The questions hang like the air in the air like the bed in Regan's room, giving the exorcist both veracity and mystery. There have been many books about the film, the best of which is probably Mark Cornado's critical historical monograph simply titled The Exorcist, published by British Film, the British Film Institute in 1997. Sekulov, to his credit, quotes Kermode extensively, adding some intellectual heft to what is otherwise a pretty straightforward procedure. The movie is like a series of questions uh, to which the answers remain tantalizingly out of reach. Yet it also has a silently sense of, of, of verit, to use a word crucial to documentary history, that makes you feel like you can reach out and touch it. A word of warning, it still burns. That was why The Exorcist still makes head spin by Chris Wagner from the uh, Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, July 30, 2023. Wagner is a freelance writer based in Houston. All right, and here is another one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. His big adventure will never end. Paul Rubens is gone, but his corny alter ego will live on in his own unique universe. For Robert Lloyd, television critic. Paul Rubens has left the earth, riding a sporty red and white bicycle into that puppet land from who's born no traveler returns, but leaves us with his great creation and alter ego, Kiwi Herman. As an actor with many diverse credits, he was mostly, most recently seen on screen in What We Do in the Shadows, The Connors, and Steve Soderbergh's Mo Mosaic, and was Emmy-nominated as a guest actor for his reoccurring role on Murphy Brown. There was, uh, there was more to Rubens, who died Sunday at the age of 70, than Kiwi.
But there was no more to Pee-wee than Rubens, who thought him up, lived inside him, and made him run. Though I suppose in some sense Pee-wee might have told Rubens where he wanted to run. Pee-wee was a local celebrity before he was catapulted to national celebration via Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985, which also gave director Tim Burton his first feature, and television's Pee-wee's Playhouse the following year. My own familiarity with Rubens began when he starred in my friend Randy Ackerson's California Institute of the Arts film thesis, The Best Scene, as an angsty beatnik who would run out into streets at night to find a dark corner to scream in. Some will have seen the character emerge from the primordial soup at the Groundlings. Many more, myself among them, in its deluxe expanded version at the Roxy in 1981, the Pee Wee Herman Show, a breathless take on the hosted children's shows that would have been intimately familiar to kids of Ruben's generation and the generations immediately preceding and following. Many, many more will have seen that show, recorded for posterity by HBO on television. When Pee-wee's Playhouse premiered on CBS, a live-action children's series in a Saturday morning lineup otherwise occupied by largely uninspiring cartoons, it was an anomaly, a throwback, even as it looked ahead, in its subversive openness to dif difference and inclusion to the future. With its sharp-edged, neo-bright, tertiary-colored, handmade, homemade, paint-splattered aesthetic, designs by puppeteer artist Wayne Wright uh, and uh, artist Gary Panter, who had worked at the Roxy Show and drew the posters and handbills that proliferated around town, and music by Devo's Mark Mothersbaugh, Playhouse embodied a new wave sensibility as if all the best shops on 1980s Melrose Avenue, where the Groundlings Theater still sustains, had been compressed into a single setting. Like many idiosyncratic characters or outsider artworks, and Rubens was not averse to describing his creation as a work of art, Pee-wee has the quality of seeming marginal even as he is massively mainstream like the band you used to see in crappy little clubs and a surprise to learn sells millions of records and fills stadiums. Anyone halfway familiar with the character might draw him on command. Red bow tie, gray suit a little too small, in a way that later became oddly fashionable, white socks, hair cropped so close it appears to be painted on, Many among us will have, will have caused to ape his tequila dance, to have made a joke about the Alamo basement, chanted Mecca Lecca Hi Mecca Heine Ho, or remarked on their friend's big butt. When the Pee Wee Herman Show, a retooled revival of the Roxy Show, opened on Broadway in 2010 after a successful run in Los Angeles, advance sales amounted to more than $3 million. HBO back again ran it as the Pee-wee Herman Show on Broadway. That there were dark uh, patches in Rubens' life that caused temporary Caesars uh, in his career is not completely out of tune with Pee-wee, who was not without a dark side, which made him, after all, more relatable, interesting, and hilarious to the children of all ages who made up his audience. An authority figure who was also a case of arrested development, Pee-wee was an overgrown peer who might also prove a role model. It is the job of the revolutionary to redefine what's normal, if not to demolish the very idea of normalcy. Pee-wee spoke to the outer uh, outsider in, all, in us all. I'm a loner, Dottie, a rebel, uh, runs a line from Big Adventure, 
quite possibly the first words that occurred to you on hearing of Reuben's passing. Pee-wee was, was in and out of Reuben's life over the years. Between the Roxy show and accompanying HBO special and the premiere of Playhouse, there were multiple Pee-wee appearances on Late Night with David Letterman, a spot opposite Morgan Fairchild and an evening at the Improv, a Pee-wee-esque interpretation of Pinocchio with Carl Reiner as Geppetto, and part of Shelley Duvall's wonderful Showtime series, Fairy Tale Theater, and Saturday Night Live, which Pee-wee guest-hosted. In 1991, after Playhouse had gone off the air, and in the wake of Rubin's much-publicized arrest in Florida, Pee-wee opened the 1991 MTV Music Awards to rapturous cheers and pump fists. Heard any good jokes lately? Following Big Adventure, on the big screen, there was Big Top Pee-wee in 1988, followed, by nearly, followed after nearly 30 years by the Netflix feature Pee-wee's Big Holiday, produced by Judd Apatow. In this century... There were appearances on Scott Ackerman's Comedy Bang Bang and WWE Raw. Playhouse was rerun on Comedy Central and Adult Swim. Rubens always stayed invisible. I occupy this unique place in some people's childhood, Rubens told me when we spoke in 2014, where there was a point in time where I influenced them in some way. I don't want to get corny on you, but I am kind of corny, and that's one of the greatest things about my career. I get this incredible feedback from people at all the time. When I go out now, someone will come up to me and say, I'm an artist because of you. I didn't really set out to do that, but that's enormously satisfying. It makes sense that Rubens, who had been ill for several years, kept quiet about it. Pee-wee is a spirit, is a sprite, a creature of myth like Pan, immune to time or decay or serious illness. He is easy enough to imagine with a cold, but not with cancer. He cared for the character, who he only op only played, who he only ever played, never exploited or mocked too much to let the cracks show. Sadly, his creator was merely mortal. Paul Rubens is gone. Long live Pee Wee Herman. That was his big adventure will never end by Robert Lloyd, television critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, August second, twenty twenty three. Okay, we've got something from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for August 3rd, 2023. This is called, Think the Wig and Accordion Were Weird? Those were nothing. Daniel Radcliffe had to embrace the crazy path taken by the tongue-in-cheek Yankovic biopic that includes romancing Madonna and playing action hero to rescue her by Darren James. Daniel Radcliffe was nervous about the release of Weird, the Al Yankovic story, but it's not what you may think. The English actor was concerned with what his in-laws would say. To be specific, the father of long-term partner Aaron Dark, who happens to be a very big Weird Al fan, he really, really liked it, thank God, Radcliffe says with a smile during a video call. I'm safe to be part of the family. Fitting, since he and Dark welcomed their first child together this year. Directed by Eric Apple, who co-wrote with Yankovic the tongue-in-cheek biopic, was spun from a nearly decade-old viral Funny or Die sketch that saw Breaking Bad alum Aaron Paul playing the parody master. The film, available free via Roku channel, amplified the premise, delivering a musical biopic parody that depicts Yankovic's rise to fame with a hefty dose of celebrity cameos, including Rain Wilson, Jack Black, Will Forte, and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Then there's Evan Rachel Wood as Madonna, 
who becomes romantically entwined with the accordion player. The only way to do a Weird Al biopic is to make it satirical, Apple said. The whole vibe of the movie encapsulates who and what Al does, so we felt that it was really the only way to tell his story. In playing the role of Yankovic while wearing a big curly wig, Radcliffe took, uh, took in the musician's body of work, watching such films as UHF, digesting songs and music videos, and talking to Yankovic, who was on the set during production. The Al, that, arid, that arrogant Al, and Al wrote in this script, is such a twisted version of the real Al. I sort of had permission to take the earnest sweetness that is very much in Al and channel that through this kind of demented, incredibly professional killer, the actor says in an early June interview. The killer, Radcliffe is referred to, is a climactic moment in the story where his character goes guns-blazing John Wick-style to save a kidnapped Madonna from superfan Pablo Escobar. Sound crazy? Yes, but it all pays off emotionally thanks to a cast that grounds the performances while never undercutting the idea that the movie is set a satirical parody. That was something Eric talked about during our first meetings about the script, Radcliffe notes. It only works if you're not playing a kind of self-awareness of the joke or an ironic distance from what it has to be. As one might expect, Yankovic's iconic song catalog is part of the story. Radcliffe performs My Bologna, Eat It, Like a Surgeon, and Amish Paradise, to name a few. Although the actor had to only lip-sync the actual songs would be dubbed in later, Radcliffe still uh, belted his heart out on set. I got the best of both worlds. I got to sing on set, and if I was a Weird Al fan, I was going to go see a Weird Al movie to hear all these songs. I would want to hear them sung by Al and not some guy, Radcliffe said. And then it's also funny watching Al's voice coming out of my head. Apple shot the fast-moving production over 18 days with cinematographer Ross Reed blocking scenes on the go for efficiency. Both Ross and I came up from the same generation of filmmakers, a background that's a little bit run-and-gun where you're shooting and editing everything yourself, says the director. We had to make a lot of choices and prep to make our days our approach was to be as economical as possible with what we were shooting. A shining example of their work is a pool party scene where Yankovic is challenged by radio personality Wolfman Jack, Jack Black, to parody Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. Among the crowd is, cultural, is a cultural who's who. Andy Warhol, Conan O'Brien, uh, Divine, Nina West, Salvador Dali, M.O. Phillips, Pee Wee Herman, Jorma Tachoni, Alice Cooper, Akiva Schaefer, and Queen bassist John Deacon, David Dasmalchian, who Radcliffe says steals the scene. The entire sequence that has Weird Al coming up with another one rides the bus on the spot was shot in an afternoon. The urgency of the schedule was something Radcliffe felt comfortable in. If there had been more time, I would have been nervous performing these songs, says the actors. Even with the steady pace, Apple planned rehearsals prior to production. We did get about a week of prep with Daniel before shooting, notes Apple. But I think what captures the live energy of the performances is that we could only do them a couple of times. So it was almost like we were doing them live, Radcliffe adds. It saves so much time on set, we couldn't have done without some rehearsal. The music performances, 
the fight sequences, all that stuff we got to rehearse. For Radcliffe, building chemistry with Wood for their uh, Weird Al and Madonna characters was easy to do. We have a lot in common starting out younger, starting out young. It gives you a common ground. We just got along really well. The first scene we were doing was the crazy makeout stuff, which was honestly less awkward than uh, other makeout scenes because the main object was not to make one make out, but to see if we could knock a painting off the wall. Evan is such a an incredible actor, and we both enjoyed the insanity of a shot this quick. We both liked that pressure. That was Think the Wig and Accordion Were Weird by Darren James from the Envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for uh, for August 3rd, 2023. All right, now here is something from a site called page6.com. And this is called How Tory Spelling Shopped Her Way from a $150 million Mansion to RV Park by Dana Kennedy for Saturday, August 5th, 2023. For all of his over-the-top glossy sudsy shows about hot Beverly Hills teens and feuding filthy rich dynasties, even TV's late super producer Aaron Spelling couldn't imagine a plot as far-fetched as his own life and legacy, which now includes his daughter Tori and five grandchildren living in cheap motels and an RV. The Beverly Hills 90210 star, 50, and her kids Liam, 16, Stella, 15, Hattie, 11, Finn, 10, and Bo, 6, made headlines earlier this month for briefly staying at a budget motel. It's a far cry from the gigantic 123-room, $150 million mansion dubbed The Manor in Holmby Hills, California, where she lived with their parents, Aaron and Candy, and a younger brother Randy grew up in. Earlier this week, Tori was photographed living at a campground in Ventura County, California, with her five children. It's a mess, said someone who has known both Tori and Dean for years and spent time in some of their homes. She claimed that both Tori and Dean are broke. While there has been speculation about why Tori's mother didn't step in to help, Candy Spelling has a very protective team who claimed Thursday that Candy found a house for Tori and her family, but Tori turned it down. The Spelling family friend uh, told Page Six that Tori and her current currently estranged husband, Dean McDermott, whom she married in 2006, have no money. In part, the source claimed, it is because of their penchant for staying in expensive rentals and Tori's shopping habit. The habit that habit mirrors her mother's well-documented love of shopping and collecting everything from dolls to beanie babies, the source said. Their household bills run 100 grand a month, the th- a source said. There's no end to the spending. In 2016, she had a room stacked to the ceiling with boxes she didn't even open. There were clothes stuffed in the bathroom with price tags still on them. Besides her shopping, there's pet care, hospital stays, private schools, you name it. The house was a pit filled with animals like pigs, snakes, and ferrets. It's white trash central. But the source also claimed that Tori needs storylines in a bid to stay relevant and maybe get another TV reality show. She and her husband have already starred in several. So she concocts dramatic situations, like spending the night with her kids in motels and RVs so the paparazzi photograph her, uh, the source claimed. The source claimed uh, that is not the only compelling storyline Tori has helped concoct, telling Page Six that they believe 
claims that uh, Tori and McDermott made up the story in 2013 that Dean had cheated with a 28-year-old named Emily Goodhand. The claim was widely aired at the time, with the Spellings using an episode of this show to push back, saying she definitely existed, but no picture ever emerged of the apparent mistress. McDermott did not return calls and texts from page 6. Tori Spelling was not reachable. Everything you see is staged by her, the source said. She doesn't exist. They did it for publicity. The two of them fool the media all the time. They construct every story. Everything is a lie. There is no reality to any of it. Tori thinks the poor little rich girl narrative is a good storyline. She thinks she is as talented and inventive as her father. But Aaron Spelling's own storyline as a bullied but scrappy Jewish kid in heavily anti-Semitic 1920s Dallas, Texas, involves success and triumph, not failure. It also began as dramatically as any of his characters. Had it not been for the murder of his mother's first husband by a random stranger who brutally stabbed him in 1911, Texas, he never would have been born. But his widowed mother of two Russian Jewish immigrant mother, uh, Pearl, proved to be as resourceful and heroic as any future spelling character when she arranged for the real love of her life, a Polish Jew named David Sperling, to emigrate to the U.S. and marry her. Sperling, a tailor, changed his name to Spelling, and they went on to have three sons of their own, Aaron being the youngest. According to several accounts, including his autobiography, Spelling's childhood was dirt poor, and he and his siblings slept five to a bed. He went on to become a pilot in World War II and then rose to become one of the most prolific producers in Hollywood, churning out more than 200 series and TV movies, including such 1970s and 80s hits like The Mod Squad, Charlie's Angels, The Love Boat, Starsky and Hutch, and Fantasy Island. He reinvented himself in the 90s with more mega hits like Beverly Hills 90210, in which Tori played the virginal Donna Martin and Melrose Place. Spelling died in 2006 at the age of 83, setting the scene for years of public feuding between his wife and daughter that mirrored some of his bitchiest characters on shows like Dynasty and Melrose Place. The two wrote dueling memoirs in which they suddenly, in Candy's case, and not so suddenly, in Tori's case, trashed each other while also claiming to love one another. Aaron reportedly left his two children, Tori and her younger brother Randy, 44, only $800,000 each at the time of his death. The bulk of his $600 million fortune went to his wife. Randy declined to comment for this story, but many, but by many accounts lives a stable life as a life coach in Portland, Oregon with his wife and two kids. Page Six spoke to, th spoke to three TV executives that Aaron Spelling worked with for years who praised him to the skies. He was the best, actress-producer Lynn Loring, who worked with Spelling in the 1980s, told Page Six. I am forever grateful. He was a brilliant guy who never got enough credit. But the private Aaron Spelling was more complicated, several people told Page Six. The truth, as I understand it, is that they were both very competitive for Aaron's attention, and he manipulated them both, one family member said, echoing claims Tori made in her 2008 book, Storytelling. In the years since his death, Candy has often taken the brunt of the blame, although she has openly flaunted her share of odd relationships. Tori, as well as Vanity Fair writer Dominique Dunn, accused her of having an affair with ex-felon Mark Nathanson during 
Aaron Spelling's last years. She denied it. More recently, she has struck up friendships with people of colorful pasts like actress, actress Tatum O'Neill and Beverly Hills realtor and Million Dollar Listing cast member Josh Flagg. Candy Spelling declined to comment for page six. She called Tatum her substitute daughter, the family friend claimed. Lauren called Candy Spelling spectacular and a terrific person, but said she also had some issues. Uh, she also had some issues. Indeed, in Candy's 2009 memoir, Story from, Stories from Candyland, one of Candy's childhood friends recalled going over to Candy's home as a child and how her mother was sometimes not well and spent many of her days in bed. I think Candy is very insecure and gives out vibes people don't understand, Loring said. I think it was difficult to learn to live with uh, all that money. I think she began to be very protective of herself and her family. But Candy's close friend, Nikki Haskell, fresh from a trip from uh, to Europe last month with Candy, says she is optimistic about mother and daughter, saying they are a work in progress. I like Tori, Haskell told Page Six. I think she's adorable. At the same time, I know she can be difficult. She can be a poor little rich girl. Candy has been very concerned about her, but at the same time, she told me that things are smoothing out. The lines of communication between them have been up and down, but I'm told things are getting better. And that was How Tori Spelling Shopped Her Way from a $150 Million Mansion to RV Park by Dana Kennedy from page6.com for August 5th, Saturday, August 5th, 2023. All right, let's turn to jewishjournal.com here. And here is something from the worldwide section. Jewish organizations form international task force against anti-Semitism. Eight major Jewish organizations from seven countries announced on July 25 that they will be forming the J7, the Large Communities Task Force Against Anti-Semitism, by Aaron Bandler, July 31, 2023. Eight major Jewish organizations from seven countries announced on July 25th that they will be forming the J7, the largest community's task force against anti-Semitism. The eight organizations that will be part of the J7 are the Anti-Defamation League, Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish American Organizations, Board of Deputies of British Jews, Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs in Canada, Central Council of Jews in Germany, Executive Council of Australian Jewry, Council Representative des Institutions Jueves de Francais, and Delegation de Asociones Israelitas Argentinas. According to a press release, the J7 will provide top consultation on the issue of anti-Semitism as well as develop strategies and action plans to counter anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is rising around the world, especially in countries where there are large Jewish populations, ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said in a statement. And threats to our communities are not contained by continents and borders. We need to meet these challenges through coordinated action. This new coalition of major organizations representing seven large Jewish diaspora communities in liberal democracies will provide a formal framework for coordination, consultation, and formulating global responses to anti-Semitic threats against the Jewish people. Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish American Organizations CEO William Daroff similarly said in a statement, 
Anti-Semitism, which is the world's oldest hatred, no longer looks for spread or spreads the way it, it did in the past. The vitriol once felt for individual Jews or Jewish practice has meta metastasized into blaming Jew the Jewish people and the Jewish state for the ills of the world. Social media enables anti-Semitic hate to cross borders, where it spreads faster than ever before. It is therefore imperative for the largest diaspora Jewish communities to engage in regular conversations to develop strategies to combat the pernicious spread of anti-Semitism. What impacts one community impacts us all. That was Jewish Organizations Form International Task Force Against Anti-Semitism by Aaron Bandler, uh, July 31st, 2023. Right here is something from uh, the United States section. Jewish Nonprofit Coalition urges BMG to sever ties with Roger Waters. <clears throat> the group headed by Creative Community for Peace sent a letter to industry giant BMG concerning the rock legend's alleged anti-Semitic behavior by Benjamin Razio, August 1st, 2023. A diverse coalition of 15 prominent Jewish nonprofit organizations released last week an open letter calling on Bertelsmann Music Group one world's largest media and publishing companies to reconsider its relationship with Roger Waters, the former Pink Floyd frontman who has stirred controversy over the years for behavior that many Jewish groups would consider anti-Semitic. The letter was organized by Creative Community for Peace, a nonprofit organization that uses the arts to combat the cultural boycott of Israel and fight anti-Semitism and sent to BMG uh, after Waters performed at a May concert in Germany where a not wearing a Nazi-like uniform and compared the death of a Palestinian journalist to the incarceration of Anne Frank. BMG has represented Waters' publishing interests since 2016. The coalition of signatories is concerned that Waters is contributing to the spread of anti-Semitism at a time when violent incidents toward Jews have been on the upswing around the world. For over a decade, Roger Waters has peddled and promoted anti-Semitism and leveraged his immense platform to spread his hateful views to millions worldwide, said Ari Engel, director of Creative Community for Peace. As we witness the continue, uh, continued rise of anti-Semitism, his words and actions are unacceptable. Our letter demonstrates the Jewish community's concern that corporations cannot sit idly by while, uh, while their business partners promote hate. We hope BMG reflects on their historical role with anti-Semitism and re-examines their relationship with Mr. Waters, Engel continued. In addition to Creative Community for Peace, the letter was signed by American Jewish Committee, Anti-Defamation League, Australia and Israel Jewish Affairs Council, B'nai B'rith International, Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, Canada, Community Security Trust, Conference of European Rabbis, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, Conseil Representative des Institutions Jueves de Francais, European Jewish Congress, Simon Weisenthal Center, South African Jewish Border of Deputies, World Jewish Congress, and Zentralrat de Juden in Dutchland. Waters' performance in Germany may have run afoul of the United States and European Union's campaigns to combat anti-Semitism, according to the letter. The letter cites a statement from the U.S. State Department made after the incident that says, Waters' performance contained imagery deeply offensive to Jewish people and minimized the Holocaust. 
the artist in question has a long track record of using anti-Semitic tropes to denigrate Jewish people, continued uh, the State Department. The performance was not the first time that Waters has drawn the ire of Jewish groups for his alleged anti-Semitic conduct. As creative community for Peace's letter notes, Waters in the past has accused UK Labour Party leader Keir Starmer of being controlled by Jews, flown at his concert's pig-shaped balloons adorned with the Star of David, suggested Israel bears responsibility for the death of George Floyd, and called for the destruction of the State of Israel. We believe that artists, given their massive influence in the world today, have a unique and important responsibility to speak out against bigotry, said the letter. Mr. Waters has repeatedly shown that he is determined to do the opposite, and would instead use his voice, his platform, and his public microphone to fan the flames of hatred. BMG has had its own checkered past with anti-Semitism. In a report from 2002, the publishing and media giant was found to have benefited significantly from Nazi rule during the Third Reich. An independent commission found that BMG published anti-Semitic material and Nazi propaganda during the war. According to the report, BMG became the German army's largest supplier of books, many of which contained anti-Semitic material. And that was... Jewish Nonprofit Coalition urges BMG to sever ties with Roger Waters by Benjamin Raziel, August 1st, 2023. Okay, now we're going to turn to the columnist section, and this is called Newsom Goes to Hollywood. Restarting television and film production would turn Newsom into a hero not just for progressive Democrats, but for a much broader swath of the electorate by Dan Schnur, August 2nd, 2023. One of Gavin Newsom's greatest political skills is his ability to change the subject. That's not a criticism. California's governor understands that an effective politician reminds voters of issues on which they agree with their leader, which makes it much easier to maintain their support when they disagree. So Newsom frequently highlights his support for abortion rights, marriage equality, and other progressive social and cultural issues that looks and looks for opportunities to provoke prominent conservative politicians with whom he disagrees. One of Newsom's favorite targets is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who combines an intense social conservatism with a noticeable interpersonal awkwardness. Given DeSantis's high profile as the most visible challenger to Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination, he presented an ideal target for Newsom, who has regularly attacked his Florida counterpart through social media, news coverage, and paid advertising. Knowing that he will need to maintain the support of California Democrats for upcoming fights on divisive housing, education, and energy policy, Newsom effectively reminds his supporters that he shares their values on the causes that are most important to them. But as DeSantis has struggled on the campaign trail, beating up on him has become a less attractive proposition. DeSantis began last week in a controversy about Nazis and ended it in a debate over slavery. As a result, he's been facing heated criticism from other Republicans, including members of his own state's congressional delegation and several of his opponents in the presidential race. The disapproval of a Democratic governor is not going to attract nearly as much media coverage in this environment, so and so Newsom has turned his attention elsewhere. Newsom's new target is not Republicans, but Hollywood. Last week, the governor's savvy communications advisor, Anthony York, informed news organizations that Newsom has contacted the, the various stakeholders in the writers and actors' strikes 
that have crippled the entertainment industry to offer uh, to immediate uh, mediate their disputes, hoping to break them, help them break their impasse and allow one of California's most lucrative industries to return to work. The last time the writers went on strike, the state's economy took an estimated $2 billion hit. With the actors now hitting the picket line too, the economic toll is almost unimaginable. As the two unions have not struck simultaneously in more than 60 years, the governor recognizes the toll that a prolonged stoppage would take not only on actors and writers, but countless workers in both the film industry itself and the immense number of other businesses that rely on the entertainment sector for their survival. Having just navigated a $32 billion deficit earlier this summer and facing the prospect of equally difficult budgetary challenges for the remainder of his term, Newsom knows that finding a way to end the strike sooner rather than later is of critical importance. In addition to the economic imperatives of getting the actors and writers back to work, uh, Newsom's team must also realize the political benefits for their boss if he is able to bring the two sides to an agreement. He attracts widespread support for his defense of abortion rights and his attacks on conservative politicians. But restarting television and film production would turn Newsom into a hero, not just for progressive Democrats, but for a much broader swath of the electorate. Voters nationally are roughly evenly divided between the two parties, but the number of Americans who want to see the next Avengers movie or a new Ted Lasso spinoff is far greater. Newsom regularly emphasizes his disinterest in running for president, either next year or in 2028. But Hollywood savior would be an extraordinarily popular draw in New Hampshire or South Carolina. The initial reaction to Newsom's offer from both the studios and the unions was lukewarm at best. But the strike is still only a few weeks old, and the battle lines seem to be hardening. But if there is no apparent progress in the negotiations soon, the involvement of a high-profile governor with strong uh, pro-labor credentials and deep relationships among movie and television executives might start looking much more attractive to them. That was Newsom Goes to Hollywood by Dan Schnur, August 2, 2023. Dan Schnur is a, the U.S. Po, uh, politics editor for the Jewish Journal. He teaches courses, courses in politics, communications, and leadership at UC Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. He hosts the monthly webinar, the Dan Schnur Political Report for the Los Angeles World Affairs Council and Town Hall. Follow Dan's work at www.danschnurpolitics.com. All right, and now this another, other one is called Cherishing Our Selah Moments. Now ask yourself, family members, and friends a simple question, What Takes Your Breath Away? by Morton Shapiro, August 2nd, 2023. Isn't it curious that the word Selah, S-E-L-A-H, appears time after time in the Hebrew Bible and in our prayer books, yet defies translation? If you don't believe me, try typing Selah into your Hebrew, Hebrew to English app. You will come up empty. It's, it usually occurs at the end of a verse, typically one of special importance. Some might say, some say it might be an ancient musical notation, so it is fitting that a rabbi friend of mine thinks of it as sound, uh, sound the trumpets, focus on what just was just said. It's sort of a Jewish mic drop. I think we all need to appreciate the extraordinary Selah moments in our lives. In Sidur Lev Shalem, directly preceding the Torah service, there is a beautiful passage from Rabbi Naomi Levy that concludes with, I yearn to succeed, 
but I often forget what is truly important. Teach me, God, to slow down. May my resting revive me. May it lead me to wisdom, to holiness, to peace, and to you. What are those occasions that are truly important? Moments that are worthy of our most thoughtful reflection. Maya Angelou has written, Life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. Selah moments are those instances that leave us breathless. I've been asking people to describe such moments, and predictably, they mention life events, births, marriages, religious ceremonies, and the like. But when I ask them for other examples, their answers have surprised me. My wife, who has traveled the world beside me in conjunction with my work, talked about being rendered speechless after turning the corner, following a long, dusty ride from De uh, Delhi, and viewing the Taj Mahal for the first time. Delhi. She was enthralled by its beauty and, a dozen years later, thinks of it often. A close friend said that it was the night that Barack Obama was elected president. My friend, who was black, was in Chicago's Grand Park when the future president stepped out on stage, accompanied by his wife and daughters. My friend was overcome with emotion as he recounted witnessing the dawn of a new America that included a, fa a first family that resembled his own. Another dear friend, a biblical scholar who made Aliyah decades ago, told me that she regularly climbs a particular staircase in the old city to be greeted by intoxicating views of the roof, domes, minarets, parks, and buildings of Jerusalem. The spectacular diversity of peoples and places inspires her each time. My co-author Gary Saul Morrison, a prolific authority on Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, gets his greatest joy from teaching undergraduates. When he runs a discussion section and the students enthusiastically talk about ideas, some of which he hadn't thought of himself, he pauses, smiles, and realizes that he has contributed to something truly special. One of the most important, um, one of the most remarkable people I know, a former chief of staff to the president of the United States, is stirred deeply whenever he attends a sporting event and F-16 fighter jets soar over the stadium during the national anthem. A proud veteran and a pilot, he removes his hat, salutes, and discreetly sobs. One of my daughters, an art historian and curator, tells me that of all the rarefied pieces of art she studies, it is Van Gogh's ubiquitous starry night that captivates her most. She never tires of standing in front of it at the Museum of Modern Art, losing herself in its brilliance. My other daughter just graduated from college. She grew up on college campuses and questioned the cult-like devotion that many alumni have for their alma maters. But as one of her college's commencement but as one of her college's commencement events, the seniors marched through an historic gate with alumni who were there uh, celebrating their reunions lined up along the path, applauding wildly for the newest entries into the alumni body. The, uh, that gave her pause, and she recognized that she had become part of a noteworthy history. For me, it is bursting with pride at airports from Seoul to Bangkok, Athens to Madrid, Johannesburg to Istanbul, when I see the exquisite Star of David on an LL plane. Wherever I might be, I am reminded that the Jewish people are there with me. I cry of it each time. During my 22 years as a college president, people would often say to me that a college presidency was the toughest job in the world. They were wrong. It's being a rabbi. Our life events mean everything to us, 
and rabbis need to be on top of their games every single day. A yawn, a mispronounced name, and the magic is gone. Talk about pressure. So I am giving the last word to an extraordinary example of the best of the rabbinite, Stephen, Lark, Stephen Stark Lowenstein from Am Shalom in Glencoe, Illinois. For me as a rabbi, I see and experience Selah moments every single day. It is truly a sacred privilege. From a look of amazement and exhaustion of new parents in the hospital as a beautiful child arrives to the excitement of the first day of religious school, it is a child celebrating a bet mitzvah with parents and grandparents tearing up in the front row. It's a new spouse circling a partner under the chuppah to arrive at the deepest level of their soul or the ring being placed on the index figure connecting hearts forever. Even in death, I've watched children eulogize parents and parents find the impossible words to eulogize their children. I've watched too many friends filling in the graves of their classmates taken far too soon and how a community comes together to comfort the mourners. It is the biggest moments that we experience with family and friends, but also it's the normal everyday moments of interaction that we sometimes take for granted, such as a beautiful Shabbat dinner with friends, affixing a mezuzah on, the new, on a new home, a first trip to Israel, or simply wearing a new tallit for the very first time. Every such moment is a moment of reflection to connect with God more intimately, and for 29 years I have been humbled to have a front row seat. Now ask yourself, family members and friends, a simple question. What takes your breath away? Selah. That was Cherishing Our Selah Moments by Morton Shapiro, August 2nd, 2023. Morton Shapiro is the former president of Williams College and Northwestern University. His most recent book with Gary Saul Morrison is Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalism Divides Us. Okay, here's another one. This is called for all the girls who could only afford one Barbie, but enjoy the heck out of it. I belong to a group of former little girls for whom, due to financial constraints or having recently arrived to this country, access to just one Barbie doll was a privilege. I call us the One Barbiers by Tabby Raphael, August 2nd, 2023. In the past few weeks, I've been feeling nostalgic. It's most likely a response to stress. Waxing nostalgia has helped me evade feeling anxious lately over the deteriorating state of public safety in Los Angeles and the turmoil that is threatening to tear my beloved Israel apart at the seams. I would dedicate a column to the judicial crisis in Israel if I believed I had something new to add to the conversation. Nostalgic Escape partially explains why last week's column made the case that menial summer jobs are a rite of passage for most teenagers. Few things are more nostalgic than reflecting on teen summer jobs. Last month, millions of women worldwide luxuriated in pink-tinged nostalgia with the release of the much-anticipated film Barbie. The movie is already a verifiable summer blockbuster, having grossed $162 million in its opening weekend. I may feel that I don't have much to add to the conversation about Israel today, but where Barbie is concerned, I believe I have some thoughts that are valuable, if only because they're different. I belong to a group of former little girls for whom, due to financial constraints or having recently arrived to this country, access to just one Barbie doll was a privilege. I call us the One Barbiers. Unlike most of our friends who had several Barbies, ample doll clothes and accessories, and even Barbie cars, horses, and houses, 
We won Barbie years had, you guessed it, one Barbie, which we protected vigilantly, and one set of Barbie clothes, which we made sure we to never damage, at least on purpose. Sometimes by sheer luck, we were granted two Barbies, and our sense of wonder was matched only by our fear of losing one of them. For us, this was no cutting there was no cutting Barbie's hair with forbidden scissors or experimenting with her head, neck, or limbs. Our Barbies lived wherever we made her a home, including shoeboxes, and wore new clothes whenever we decided to turn her, her shirt, skirt, or dress inside out. And as for having a Ken doll, we knew better than to ask for one. The addition of another doll in that shoebox would only have meant another mouth to feed. I'm kidding. We didn't have Ken dolls because if our parents gave us the choice of a second doll, we would have blissfully opted for another Barbie. Ken was nice, but he was the sensible loafers to Barbie's glorious stilettos. We weren't victims, nor were we constantly deprived of even basic niceties. We simply didn't have many Barbies because our parents lived more modestly, didn't want their daughters playing with such dolls, or both. One friend who grew up in the 80s in a lower middle-class home learned to tolerate Barbie knockoffs. When we would go into KB toys, toy stores, she told me, my sister and I would walk into the store, hold up a real Barbie doll, and ask our mom, is this cheap? If the answer was no, we would hold up another one, uh, another Barbie, and ask the same question. Those were the only words we would say at the store. Is this cheap? My friend continued, we not only got fake Barbie dolls because we couldn't afford real ones, but we also had to get fake Cabbage Patch Kids. These were called Dream Barbies. I looked up Dream Barbies on Google. They had a strange resemblance to Cabbage Patch Kids, but there was something about their faces that suggested they needed to eat more cabbage and other natural laxatives. I have a special place in my heart for Barbie knockoffs. Like my payless shoes and imitation guest jeans, they were truly better than nothing. It's a well-known fact that Barbie was such a runaway hit when it was introduced in 1959 because it offered the first alternative to a baby doll. As book critic Maureen Corrigan told NPR's Fresh Air last week, my Betsy Wetsy always needed a diaper change, my chatty Kathy needed to be taught not to interrupt, and my walking doll, whose name I've forgotten, always needed assistance lumbering around the living room. Before Barbie, playing with dolls was akin to running a combination nursery, rehab, an assisted living facility. Back in Iran, my mother sewed my dolls despite the fact that it was the late 80s. My first introduction to a doll that resembled a grown woman was in Italy, when, in transit as refugees, my parents treated me to a Barbie knockoff they bought at a local outdoor bazaar for a few lira. I was delighted to have a doll that looked like a grown woman, even if it was made of such cheap plastic that left the left leg and right arm broke off after a few days. I didn't care that much. I didn't care that my Marby, Mark, Mock Barbie, looked like an amputee. She was the first doll I owned that wasn't made of stuffing. I was always grateful to my mother for those hand-sewn puffy rag dolls, but this Chinese-made Italian-sold limbless Marby was exhilarating. In 1990, after we came to the United States, my parents bought, uh, bought me an actual Barbie. I'll never forget that Barbie. She was elegant, she was a ballerina, and she was the cheapest Barbie at Kmart on 3rd Street and Fairfax Avenue. 
it wasn't that one Barbie doll was unaffordable, especially in the early 90s. It was that I wanted more than one because it was an unspoken understanding that any girl who only possessed one Barbie was, for lack of a better term, broke. But as most immigrants or refugees will attest, it's often either a fake Barbie or real fruit juice or real Barbie and Sunny D. Did Barbie promote unrealistic body expectations to me? Of course. But I didn't yearn for Barbie's ample cleavage, laughably thin waist, or long legs that, in real life, would have rendered her half-woman, half-giraffe. I developed unrealistic body images from Barbie for different reasons. I was a Persian kid in a sea of many Ashkenazim. Back then, I would have traded an appendage for some blonde hair and blue eyes. Perhaps I could have borrowed an arm or a leg from my fake Barbie back in Italy. In second grade, my parents magnanimously bought me a second Barbie, effectively disqualifying me from the one Barbiers group. Hawaiian Barbie had blindingly blonde hair and such a bad tan that I almost wanted to take her to see a dermatologist. A few years later, my sister's friend brought over a, gar a garbage bag full of amazing Barbie clothes. But by then, I was entering middle school and no longer gave myself permission to play with Barbies. I had just turned 12 and was more interested in boys to men than Barbies. Jewish readers should know that Barbie was created by an American Jewish businesswoman named Ruth Handler and her husband Elliot, and that Barbie director Greta Gerwig, thought herself not, though herself not Jewish, told the New York Times that she hopes viewers will watch the film and feel like I did at Shabbat dinner. When, as a young girl, Gerwig and her family were guests at Shabbat meals hosted by observant family friends. No matter how you feel about her, Barbie is an important part of various Jewish-American contributions to pop culture that truly made this country stand out in the past 100 years. And to all those one Barbiers or those with Marbies that are still being purchased at the 99-cent-only store and their limbs are still falling off, be patient. Many good things still lie ahead, including rewarding education, fulfilling careers and family life, and, if interest rates allow, a perfectly reasonable dream house. That was for all the girls who could only afford one Barbie but enjoyed the heck out of it. By Tabby Raphael, August 2nd, 2023. And Tabby Raphael is an award-winning writer, speaker, and weekly columnist for the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Tabby Raphael. At this next one is called A Jew by Choice. I am proud to say that I am a Jew by choice, not by birth, by Lindsay Alter, August 3rd, 2023. I'm proud to say that I am a Jew by choice, not by birth. When my husband and I were dating, he told me he needed to marry someone Jewish. I didn't think he was serious. I had never seen him show any real interest in Judaism, but I learned that he and many family members and descendants of Holocaust survivors wanted to continue his Jewish line because his ancestors could not. It was very powerful for me, and I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him. So after we were engaged, I started my conversion process. He attended every session with me, and this time with the rabbi becoming our first steps together as a Jewish couple. I had no knowledge of Judaism prior to converting. I was raised Lutheran, but I never felt connected to Christianity. It always felt very black and white to me. Here are the rules, here's what you do. 
Judaism, on the other hand, felt very gray. My core takeaways of Judaism were ask a lot of questions and be a good person. I hadn't known that a religion could, could look like that, welcoming, hospital, open to all. It felt comforting and freeing. It felt like a space where I belonged. When our first child was born, my husband and I began to create our own family traditions. It was challenging at times as I did not have my own Jewish family history to fall back on. One of my best friends introduced me to PJ Library, an organization that sends free books to families raising Jewish children. The books depict how different families and communities celebrate Judaism, and they helped me feel more comfortable creating our own family dynamic. They helped me find a voice to say, our family is different than your family uh, was when you were growing up, and I'd like to celebrate this way for our family. One way I started exploring Judaism and my new Jewish identity was through cooking. I bought some Jewish cookbooks and started to learn culinary history. There are so many different and varied dishes from Jewish communities all over the world. I learned to make bagels, blintzes, and delicious Sephardi leek patties. My very first challah recipe came from a PJ Library book. This is the challah. The books are a huge resource for me personally because I don't have a childhood full of Jewish memories but want to create those special childhood memories for my children like baking the challah. I joined UJA when we moved from New York City to Westchester. I wanted to meet more Jewish women in our community and continue to explore my Jewish identity and ours as a family. A friend told me about the Parent Connector program in Westchester. Parent Connectors create local gatherings for Jewish families with young children. My friend knew I had spent 10 years in the events industry before I had children and was now a stay-at-home mom, and she thought that it would be a great fit for me. Becoming a Parent Connector helped me further my own Jewish education, get more acclimated with my community, and make new friends. When I started planning those, these events, I worried only a few people would attend, but my supervisor shared a valuable insight. You don't have to move masses. You can make big impacts with a small number of people. I met so many amazing people with different Jewish identities. For anyone who is new to an area or wants to make more connections with Jewish families in your area, it is a great place to start. You meet one person, they introduce you to someone else, and it creates a ripple effect. As our, as our children continue to grow, our Jewish journey as a family is ever-changing. We still receive the PJ Library books each month, e uh, teaching different ways to celebrate and express my own Jewish identity. They are one of the main reasons I feel comfortable enough as a new Jewish mother to go out and create our own Jewish family narrative. It is exciting to be able to create our own Jewish story filled with unique memories for our children. That was A Jew by Choice by Lindsay Alter, August 3rd, 2023. Uh, Lindsay Alter is a parent who lives in Briarcliff Manor, New York, with her husband and their children. Okay, here's another one. Embracing the simpler things. I realized recently that I am now a boring person, and I'm totally fine with that. By Kylie Ora Lobel, August 3rd, 2023. When I was younger, I'd throw myself into the mosh pit at punk rock concerts and crowd surf whenever I got the chance. I frequently stayed up all night and wouldn't get out of bed until noon. I traveled the world, sometimes going to sketchy places, and always craved my next great adventure. 
These days, what I crave is a quiet walk in a butterfly sanctuary, or perhaps a hot decaf coffee at the end of a long day. I like sitting on the couch and watching the latest chick flick on Amazon Prime and having picnics with my family. I realized recently that I'm now a boring person, and I'm totally fine with that. After giving birth to my two daughters, I began to embrace the simpler things in life. Being a mother to a 19-month-old and 3-year-old is totally amazing, but, uh, but also totally exhausting, and I seek out activities that will give my brain a rest. Thinking about getting on a plane and traveling to some far-flung country sounds like a nightmare. Taking a 15-minute long shower, in which I actually get to wash my hair and condition it too, sounds like a dream. Growing up, I always thought adults and all the activities they did was boring. My dad would try to make me culture by dragging me along to modern art museums and explaining why certain pieces were so important. Important, so important. I'd yawn and check the time, anxiously anticipating when I could leave. My mom loved uh, going on walks and would invite me to go along with her. No thanks, I said. I'd rather be riding my bike down a steep hill or ziplining into the woods behind our house. But these days, I understand why my parents li uh, like these seemingly boring activities. The older I get, the more hectic my life becomes. I'm busier than ever in my career and at home. I rarely get breaks from both or sometimes uh, to just be. When I get the chance to go on a nice walk by myself, pick up some plants for my garden, or read a book before bed, I completely, I'm completely content. My, the latest routine I've created for myself is waking up before 7 on Shabbat morning and reading the Jewish Journal and the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal cover to cover. Never in my life did I think I'd become an early bird, but here I am. The adults who woke up early were correct again. It's so lovely to be awake in the quiet hours of the morning, watching the sunrise and getting some peace before the whole neighborhood wakes up. If my teenage self could see my adult self today, she might say, Wow, Kylie, you've become so lame. But she couldn't possibly understand. We are not meant to live like teenagers forever. What is exciting uh, when we are young isn't necessarily exciting when we're older. When I was young, I wanted to have fun. Now that I'm older, I want meaning. I want long-term happiness and not temporary thrills. My calming rituals contribute to my well-being and make me feel a deeper sense of joy. In a time when the world seems crazier than ever and life is noisy and busy, I'm happy to have my refugees from the madness. I'll take a Sunday brunch with my husband and kids over a late night at a club any day. Give me the Americano and keep the beer, please. One day when I'm retired and my kids are out of the house, perhaps I'll become a little more adventurous again. For now, I'm perfectly fine with being boring, which really isn't a bore at all. Are you enjoying being boring? Email me, kylieol at jewishjournal.com. That was Embracing the Simpler Things by Kylie Ora Lobel, August 3rd, 2023. Kylie Ora Lobel is the community editor of the Jewish Journal. And this next one is called, Will Jewish Community Panic If Anti-Semitism Ever Goes Down? If money makes the world go round, in the Jewish communal world, anti-Semitism makes the money come out by David Suisa, August 3rd, 2023. 
I can't tell you how often I get emails from Jewish groups alerting me that anti-Semitism is on the rise. Week after week, I'm told that this rise is nothing short of alarming and we must rise up to fight it. These messages, needless to say, needless to say, invariably come within a pinch, a pitch for donations. After all, how can you fight anti-Semitism without money? If money makes the world go round, in the Jewish communal world, anti-Semitism makes the money come out. Which brings up the question, what happens if anti-Semitism ever goes down? That is, if activist groups succeed in lowering anti-Semitism to non-alarming levels. Without the trusted crutch of alarmism, how much money would these groups raise? Here's the thing about alarmism. It's like sugar. It's cheap and instant. Deep down, you may, you may know it's not good for you, but, you uh, but the taste is irresistible. Just as our brains are wired to crave certain tastes, they're wired to look out for trouble. A new story about the alarming rise of anti-Semitism can quickly flood our brains, setting us up perfectly for a money pitch. That's why combating anti-Semitism has become such a growth industry. It's a no-brainer. It's so blatantly obvious, who could ever be against it? If we feel they're coming after us, must we not rise up at once and fight? The crucial question is always how to fight. Just as in a literal battle, we assume that the best way to fight is through confrontation. We must condemn, call out, punish, expose, protest, squelch the evil virus. This kind of battle works best with donors because it's concrete and visible. But does it work? I've written before that if the fight against anti-Semitism were a business, it would go into Chapter 11. I was uh, to explain that after years and years of pouring more and more money and resources into the fighting, Somehow, we keep hearing that it's never been worse. Our reason we've been pouring so much money into a losing battle is that anti-Semitism is unlike any other cause. It holds a sacred emotional place in the Jewish consciousness. How could it not? Jewish hatred in the, is the world's oldest, most resilient hatred. It's behind the darkest moment in our history. No matter where we've been and what we've done, the virus has found a way to adapt and spew its poison on the Jews. Any news story, any email, any conversation that touches on the subject can set us off. We have a 2,000-year reservoir of fear to draw upon. This understandable fear is the ultimate trigger for donors, readers, and fundraisers alike. But we pay a price for allowing that fear to own us. For one thing, fear focuses forces us into a short-term mentality. When we're in the throes of short-term battles, Nothing else matters but the here and now. The long term loses saliency. It's in the long term, however, where the Jewish future lies. Fighting against hate may bring us temporary satisfaction, but it won't nourish a strong and lasting Jewish identity. This doesn't mean we should ignore anti-Semitism. It means we shouldn't allow it to dominate us. We should pick our battles. We should correct the lies against Israel. We should use every legal resource available. At the same time, we should stop publicizing every little act that offends us under the guise of calling out. We should stop deluding ourselves and inflating expectations that we can ever end Jew hatred. We should stop playing the victim, playing the victim Olympics because it's a game we'll always lose. And we should stop looking like fragile, humorless killers of free speech who worry only about our own. If we're going to worry about our own, let's focus on what we are for, not what we're against. 
Let's educate our leaders and encourage our donors to elevate the positives. In the long run, an attachment to our ancient and timeless tradition is what will last. Bringing Jews to Shabbat meals will do more for the Jewish future than bringing them to demonstrations against Jew hatred. It's true that in recent years, the focus on fighting a common enemy has lit a Jewish spark throughout our community. But band-aids are temporary. Skirmishes come and go. If we allow the haters to define our identity and prioritize priorities, we can't help but lower ourselves, uh, whether we realize it or not. I'm waiting for the day when nurturing strong Jewish identities will overtake the fight against Jew hatred as a communal priority. It won't be as dramatic or immediate or lucrative as our daily emergencies, but there's no need to panic because it'll be better for the Jews and the Jewish future. That was Will Jewish Community Panic If Anti-Semitism Ever Goes Down by David Suisa, August 3rd, 2023. All right, and here is one more here. Satirical Semite, Dating GPT. Dating is a labor-intensive activity and is demanding. As such, I've outsourced my dating communications to chat GPT-4 by Marcus J. Freed, August 3rd, 2023. Dating is a labor-intensive activity and is demanding. Apart from meeting the increasing amount of current demands in dating profiles about your height, finances, level of religiosity, and vacation preferences, there is the sheer time commitment. As such, I've outsourced my dating communications to ChatGPT-4. I'll use VALL-E to uh, simulate my voice. DALL-E will create my photo. And I'll use Synthesia.io to design my AI avatar for video calls. What can possibly go wrong? Let's get started. MJF, writing, write my date pro, dating profile for the Hinge app. I am Jewish, creative, an actor, filmmaker, and marketing consultant. I like learning Torah and Kabbalah. Write an understated, hilarious, intelligent, witty, brilliant column for the Los Angeles Jewish Journal. Chat GPT, Jewish creative soul, active, filmmaker, marketing consultant, learning Torah and Kabbalah, columnist for LA Jewish Journal, witty brilliance in every word, seeking a partner to laugh, learn, and create lifelong memories. Let's write our own love story. Hashtag actor life. Hashtag spiritual journey. So far so good. Albeit a little Gen Z emoji happy. On we go. MJF. Write a response to a dating profile. Be warm, light, cordial. Chat GPT. Dear name. Hope this message finds you well. I stumbled upon your dating profile and was immediately drawn in by your warmth and charm. Your photos showcase not only your beauty, but also your unique personality and interests, which is a rare find these days. I can't help but feel uh, uh, feel excited about the possibility of getting to know you better and sharing new experiences together. MJF, OMG, Perlise, that sounds creepy. Try again, don't be creepy. Chat GPT, hi, your profile radiates warmth and positivity, which I find truly refreshing. I'm drawn to your unique interests and won't and would love to chat more about our shared passions. Take care. MJF. That sounds generic and bland, but let's move on. Write an MM 
write an SMS message asking her out on a date. Chat GPT. Hey, name, would you be interested in grabbing dinner at that new Italian place next Friday? Let me know. MJF. Not bad, except I'm Sabbath observant and can't go out on Friday nights. Unless you're referring to Shabbat dinner at the new Italian Chabad rabbi uh, who just moved in town. Chat GPT. Sorry, I don't understand. Please, can you clarify? MJF. Never mind. Please write a message to her after our first date. Chat GPT. Thanks for a great time last night, name. Your sense of humor and intelligence were truly impressive. Can't wait to do it again soon. MJF. Great. Just in case it doesn't work out, please write a heartfelt breakup letter, letter to her, explaining why we can't be together, even though I love her. Chat GPT. Dear, your name. I've spent a long time writing this letter, and it is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I never thought I would have to say goodbye to you, but the reality is our relationship has come to an end. I've been struggling with this decision for a long time now, and it has been weighing heavily on my heart. I love you deeply, but I know in my heart that we can't be together. I will always cherish the memories we have made together. You have been a constant source of happiness in my life, and I will never forget the love we've shared. I'm so sorry for any pain or hurt I may have caused you through this. This goodbye is not a reflection of my love for you, but rather an acknowledgement that we have grown apart and that it's time for us to move on. I hope that we can both find peace and closure in this difficult time and that our paths will cross again in the future as friends. Take care of yourself, your name. You will always have a special place in my heart. With love, your name. Perfect. And finally, MJF, write a closing paragraph from my column used about using ChatGPT to write my communications for Jadie. ChatGPT. In conclusion, leveraging the power of ChatGPT to write your dating communications can be a game changer. With its language expertise, you can impress and connect with potential partners more effectively. Perfect. I could not have written it better myself. That was Satirical Semite Dating GPT by Marcus J. Freed, August 3rd, 2023. Your name is a writer, filmmaker, and marketing consultant. www.marcusjfreed.com and on social at Marcus J. Freed. All right, let's go on to the community section. And we start with this one. Modest and chic, swimwear lands just in time for summer. The line, which is sold online, features swimwear, tops, skirts, tights, and sets in bright colors and trendy patterns like animal prints and palm trees by Kylie Ora Lobel, August 2nd, 2022. Growing up in Israel, 32-year-old Morani Jersey went to an all-girls school. Though her teachers were religious, they would always wear stylish, modest clothing to work. When she saw them at the local beach, however, they would be wearing t-shirts and pants, which were not so fashionable. This affected me greatly, Jersey said. I couldn't understand why such a respectful and elegant woman would not wear chic swimwear. But there were no other options available to them. When Jersey started working, she made it her mission to create a line of modest but chic swimwear for women. She had a background in business and had been sewing and interested in fashion as a child. Remembering her teachers, she created Moray Swimwear. This line, which is sold online, 
features swimwear tops, skirts, tights, sets in bright and sets in bright colors and trendy patterns like animal prints and palm trees and offers options for women who are breastfeeding as well as plus sizes up to 2XL. There are more options today for women who want better uh, coverage swimwear than five years ago, Jersey said. However, there are fewer options for plus sizes and breastfeeding women, which Moray Swimwear Designs offer. Since starting Moray, it has taken off and is being featured on The Reflective, a leading global website for modest fashion. And recently, Moray Swimwear received an invitation to participate in Dubai Fashion Week, making it the first Israeli company to pre present at this prestigious event. Our collection in Dubai Fashion Week demonstrated the growing popularity of modest swimwear, not only because of religious reasons, but also because more women are seeing the beauty of cover-ups and feel more comfortable wearing them, said Jersey. This proves to us that modest fashion is in demand in all religions. According to the mother of two, who was based in the south of Israel, Kiryat Gat, in the district of Ashkelon, but ships her swimwear swimsuits worldwide, modest swimsuits help women feel much more comfortable. They do not have to change their swimwear all the time and cover up with a towel to feel comfortable, she said. They can feel free to run with their kids on the beach or go to the beach with their partner without having to change their clothes. She continued, the Torah gives Jewish women a special, respectable, respected rule, which affects our clothing. Looking forward, along with uh, growing the business and offering jobs to religious women, Jersey hopes to expand her business and provide even more options for her customers. Ultimately, that's her goal, to make her customers feel comfortable in their skin while looking beautiful and upholding their values at the same time. That was Modest and Chic Swimwear Lands Just in Time for Summer by Kylie Ora Lobel, August 2nd, 2023. And let's conclude with this one, Aliyah, a Jemak Boutique in Tarzana. It's a concept that probably doesn't exist anywhere else in America. A store without price tags where the customer sets the price and pays whatever they can by Ayala or L, August 2nd, 2023. It's a concept that probably doesn't exist anywhere else in America. A store without price tags where the customer sets the price and pays whatever they can. And no, there is no catch, but this is the policy at the Aliyah Boutique in Tarzana. Imagine this. You go into a store choosing a few items, a pair of shoes, a couple of shirts, a pretty handbag, maybe even an elegant pantsuit. A friendly lady bags your merchandise, then you say thank you and head out without paying. No, you are not stealing anything. You are welcome to put some dollar bills and coins into the charity box and no one will say anything if you choose not to. Run by Hesed Ritziana, a Jewish charity organization, Aliyah is a second-hand boutique located in a small shopping center on Ventura Boulevard by Tampa Avenue. Members of the Orthodox community are familiar with the term Germach, short for Germalat Hasadim, which basically means that people can borrow and sometimes keep items they need free of charge or interest. Uh, the the gimmicks are lifesavers for people in need who can't afford to purchase things such as baby essentials, heaters, clothes, and more. This unique concept, which can be found mostly in ultra-Orthodox communities, is available to all thanks to Aliyah's boutique. On the day I visited the boutique, designed by interior designer Lirana Ohayan, I saw a couple shopping for children's clothes 
and a woman who picked a summer dress, a belt, a new pretty handbag that looked quite new. Once she finished her shopping and headed to the front desk, she seemed a little puzzled, noticing there was no cash register. How much is this dress and bag? She asked the store manager. There are no price tags. You pay as much as you want to. You set the price, came the unexpected reply. A charity box on the front desk suggested that customers donate money instead of paying for the merchandise. But no one will judge you if you leave without making a donation. Fered Peretz, the woman behind the store, explained how she can afford to run the store with that business model. We didn't open it for profit, but for the community, a kind of community center, she said. This place is more than just a clothing store. It's a place for the soul. You know how we always pass on our baby's clothes that are too small to our family and friends. So here we do the same thing, pass them on to the people in the community. This is truly an amazing thing that doesn't exist anywhere. When customers wonder where the price tags are, we explain to them what it's all about. They are very surprised and excited about the concept and leave donations even if they didn't get anything in the store. This place is for people who need help, who can't afford to buy clothes and shoes, but it's also a place for people who want to find beautiful secondhand clothes just like in any other store. The only difference here is that they are donating to a good cause. This place can only exist if those who can afford it would give a donation. Otherwise, it won't last long. Aliyah offers much more than clothing and footwear. Those who need a stroller, baby crib, mattress, or a new dresser can find them on the store's WhatsApp feed. We can't keep big items here, so we upload them to WhatsApp, and anyone who is interested can ask us to put them on hold and then come up, come and pick them up. The back room serves as a storage space for items donated by the community. One of the volunteers, whose name is also Aaliyah, is sorting through them. Only those in excellent condition will find their way to the hangars. The rest will be donated to other charities. We have so many people to thank. This is a community effort, said Peretz. Shmulik, who has a laundromat, comes every few days, collects what we don't need, and transfers the bags to other organizations. His wife Mira also helps a lot, helps us a lot. When we received many book donations, she took the initiative to sell them online for three for us for three hundred dollars. Adva, the photographer, always comes and takes photos whenever we need, and some volunteers do PR. This place would not exist if not for uh, for the volunteers. Peretz moved to Los Angeles from Israel nearly twenty years ago. She planned on visiting her father who lives here and then go back to Israel. But then she met her husband, the son of Israeli parents who immigrated to the U.S. many years ago. The couple now have five children. Peretz is Orthodox and wears a headscarf. Every two weeks, she teaches Torah classes for women as part of a group called Mamtakim La Neshama, Sweet for the Soul. Religious and secular women of various ages and places in life attend the lessons which are also available on YouTube. Her children also get hooked on the joy of giving back. A few months ago, Peretz received a phone call from her son's teacher. He asks if you can send a pair of shoes to school with an Uber. Peretz didn't understand why her son needed a pair of shoes, but the teacher explained. He noticed that a child from one of the classes comes to school with torn shoes every day. So he asked me to call you and ask you to send a pair of shoes from Aaliyah. Peretz quickly called Esther and asked her to find a pair of shoes in the child's size, ordered an Uber, and sent the pair to the school. Needless to say, the jester moved the little boy and his mother to tears. 
I include a store flyer in the plastic bag so the mom can come back and, and get more things at the store, recalled Peretz. A few days later, she came and I found that she had seven children and can barely make ends meet. She was thrilled to learn that she can get clothes and shoes for her children for free. Last Passover, she came and got beautiful holiday clothes for all of her children. Aliyah gives people in need the freedom to come to a boutique and shop just like everyone else without feeling embarrassed about their situation. Equally important, it gives to the community the opportunity to give back. Aliyah is located at 19311 Ventura Boulevard in Tarzana. Hours are 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday uh, from 12 to 4 p.m. Closed Friday and Saturday. And folks, that will do for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace. <laughs>